Geek Nerdery. Player one, press start to play. What's it like to play the Nintendo Entertainment System? It's like being on the ultimate power trip. You're playing exciting arcade hits like Super Mario Brothers, Kung Fu, Hogan's Alley, Karnov, and other games like Breakthrough and Excitebike. Deluxe set comes as shown with two game packs, other games sold separately. Nintendo, now you're playing with power. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Graveyard Duck Podcast, episode number 37. With you, as always, my name is Scott. And I'm Wes. And, uh, well, Wes, here we are just trucking along through um, the chronology of Nintendo. Um, chronologically? Chrono- chrono- chronotonically? I don't chronastically. know. <laughs> chronastically. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm digging this format. I really am. Like, Because uh, now we're starting to get into the good stuff. And, you know, it's only going to get better from here. Yeah, so if you're if you're just starting out with us, um, we we've kind of changed away or gotten away from our normal format, and we've decided that we're going to take you know about ten years or ten episodes here and do. We can do ten years. That's fine. We get to it for ten years, sure. Why not? Um, might get a little repetitive toward the end, but. 1983 uh, in television. Straight <laughs> from the bottom of the barrel. Um, Channel F. But yeah, we decided to take. Um, a look, you know, kind of more in depth at the NES itself, and kind of take it one year at a time. Started with 1985 when it first hit the uh, U.S. shelves, and kind of just been working one year at a time. Kind of trying to also spotlight some games that we feel are overlooked or underrated, underappreciated. And uh, yeah, it's it's been an interesting run so far. 1985, we learned that um, basically it was just the launch titles, and Nintendo just wanted to. Sh- basically say hey look we're not the atari like we look better than that and kind of that's about all they had really going for them by 86 we kind of saw two trends we noticed that um as far as you know nintendo themselves they were focused almost exclusively on let's bring the arcade home with donkey kong donkey kong jr mario brothers popeye that sort of thing and you know those were great but didn't really hold a lot of interest and it's it's hard for gamers now i think to go back and really spend a lot of time on those uh it was kind of a time and a place and for a lot of us um and then the the third party companies in 1986 were focused on just kind of getting their feet wet like they really kind of started to break in and we're starting to learn like oh so this is what this system can do but with a few notable exceptions they really weren't that remarkable and um most of it was just completely forgettable and 86 was a kind of low spot you know in history but then we get to 1987 and i think this is where in my opinion the nes really caught its stride and really 
just took off and defined itself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is where it starts getting really good. Right. Uh, looking through the list, I've got, you know, from what I've been pulling up, that's 53 games were released in 1987. And from everything that I'm seeing looking through the list, there's, I mean, there's definitely some some low lights here as well. But I think that, you know, the, the biggest things that we're going to notice here is that Nintendo of America themselves just kind of blew the doors open and said, okay, we're not going to just port arcade games anymore. Let's start making some original content. And they were starting to realize what this system was capable of. And we got, I mean, I, I can just, you know, list off the big four right here, Kid Icarus, Metroid, um, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, and The Legend of Zelda. Hmm. I mean... Well, and Zelda 2, I would put that put that at number 5. Zelda 2 wasn't 87. No. Oh, no, that's 88. I'm sorry. That's on the 88 list. Never mind. Getting too, too excited there, buddy. I know. I know. Talk Zelda 2. That'll be um, So, yeah, I mean, right there, those four games are some of the you know most defining franchises for Nintendo. And then you've got third-party companies that are coming out here and just you know knocking it out of the park as well. Konami hits the ground running with Castlevania. Capcom comes in with Mega Man, and Acclaim and Rare come in and make Wizards and Warriors. And comes in with Sky Kid. Oh wait, <laughs> uh, you know, it, comes in with Spelunker. Yeah, Spelunker's there too. Don't that's that's that is a true story statement. Um, yeah. But you know, as I look at just these you know, seven games that I just mentioned, that right there is enough to solidify that, yeah, this was a really, really big year for Nintendo. And the the two kind of defining things that I can see when I look at those seven games is, number one, maybe with the exception of Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, all of these games, like, were very, very involved and deep. Like, it wasn't just Donkey Kong anymore or... Mm -hmm these games where you've got sprites moving around on a very generic background. I mean, hell donkey Kong, your background is just a black screen. Um, there's very little story, if anything, to most of those games from 85, 86, all of a sudden with these games though, in the short span of just, you know, less than a year, we all of a sudden have character development. We have story and plot. We have whole worlds that are kind of developing, like when you look at, you know, Metroid, Kid Icarus, The Legend of Zelda, all, all of these, it's like this is a whole universe that's yeah. spawned from this tiny little 8-bit game. Um, and, and I mean, as kids playing these games, like our imagination was going crazy. Like I never played Wrecking Crew as a kid and imagined like, wow, this world is so big. But you put me in front of Castlevania and it's like I could picture this entire building. Like it's this giant structure but, the building and wrecking crew i mean there's a whole story there just going and demolishing people's homes yeah i don't see it <laughs> um, you've got a point though because uh this is where things start to shift away from the arcade sensibilities into uh you know like you said something more story driven and a little bit longer uh a little bit longer game a little bit more involved uh, you know and you put a punch out on the list too and Punch-Out is a good example, too, of even, you know, sort of, even though it was an arcade game before that, that was sort of, you know, they took the core elements of that and kind of put a little bit more of a story into it as well. Right. You know, right. And the story of Little Mac kind of going through, fighting his way to the top, so to speak. So, yeah. Yeah, the, the, these games were more immersive. They sucked you in. 
Whereas yeah. I think that all of the games previous to this, it was all about score. It was all about just, you know, can you do better than you did last time? Can you get onto that top five board? Whereas with these games, with the exception of Mega Man, which still had a score in there, um, it wasn't about setting a high score. It wasn't about points. It was getting to the end. It was about accomplishing a goal. It was solving, you know, a puzzle, you know, completing a quest, that sort of thing. And sure. it no, was the kind of thing that you spent years and years working at. Um, it's it's not a Donkey Kong Jr. that it's a single sitting and each time you try to get better, this was one that you chopped away at over time. Yeah, I would also argue though that there's still a lot of score attack games in '87 though. There, there are definitely, and and yeah. I mean, I'll, I mean, I'll admit my points are kind of focusing on some of these. Yeah, and within I see where you're going too, as far as um, as, and I would even put Goonies too on that list as far as uh, you know, he, big heavy story driven games because you know, much like Metroid, I mean, Goonies too is sort of a classic Metroidvania in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Uh, and that's even kind of weird, too, because if you think about it, we never got Goonies 1 on NES. It was on the Famicom and on the uh, certain, like, Play Choice pen machines. And that was more of a linear platformer. But Goonies 2, like, opening up to be, like, a full-on adventure game with uh, tons of screens. I mean, that was that was awesome Yeah, back in the day, you know? So, yeah. I don't know. It's Yeah, it's an interesting mix, you know? The other thing that I was going to say that a lot of these games started to... You know, show here in this year was a really just solid and tight control. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, absolutely. I, I, th- I think that a lot of the games we were talking about before this, like they still felt a little bit sloppy or clunky, like you kind of did your best, but like, you know, we heard many of our listeners lamenting during our ice climber challenge that it's like, man, it's just, it's tough to control those little dudes. And yeah, ice climber is a little different though, because it's, you're, you're, you're dealing with ice as a slippery surface versus like controls that are not very responsive. Yeah, but that's that's not. I think for ice they're not jumping on ice. Yeah. Like when they're jumping, the. Yeah, but that's different though. Versus, I would argue versus like a, a poorly programmed uh, game. I guess it, that's kind of what I thought you were saying. I, I well, I've just always gotten the sense that a lot of those was still programmers trying to figure stuff out, and I. I, mean, I think I, that what we see by 87 is that they know what they're doing and it's not perfect. Like I'll admit that kid Icarus and Metroid are, are both games that it's like, yeah, there's, they're a little bit slippery for some people. Yeah. Kid Icarus has a ton of like ice platforms and the fact that uh, you, you barely crouch in kid Icarus and you fall through platforms. Mm-hmm. So yeah. For the most part, that's where a lot of the difficulty comes from is just learning not to like, crouch your way through everything because you'll fall and kill yourself. Yeah. So yeah, there, there are flaws. It's not perfect yet, but I right. think that we're getting no, get to a saying. point where the, there are games pr- prior to this year where you might even think that the game has a lot of potential, but it's hard to get to that point because the gameplay itself just isn't that fun because of mechanics. Yeah. It, and it I don't feel like that's, I don't feel like that's near of a, near as much as a hurdle here. Yeah, no, I get you. I, I think it depends too. I mean, if you if you like score attack style games, uh, there's still a lot of stuff in '85 and '86 that's good. But like you said, '87 is where the the system is really starting to come into its own and uh, develop much more in depth games. Right. Well, but we're not here to talk about the uh, the highlights because everybody knows that, and we want to spotlight some of the little you know lesser known games. But um, 
before we do that, let's kick off a little bit like we do every episode and talk about nostalgia. So I did not have an NES in 87, so I'm going to sit this one out. But Wes, I believe you did. Did you not? I did, actually, yeah. Um, Christmas of 87, actually. So, um, yeah, so right on the cusp. But, yeah, my my nostalgia for it's really kind of strange, but it's kind of funny, though, because um, so I had... I remembered playing the NES um, at an FAO Schwartz on vacation in 87, and the game that they had on display that I remember playing was Section Z, which was kind of weird for a display game. Yeah. But um, I think it was in Chicago, if I remember right. I think we were at Water Tower Place on like a just a shopping mall trip or something. But, uh, and, you know, previously before that, I'd played arcade games. Uh, I'd played bowling on the atari 2600 and combat and stuff like that so like it was like wow this is really cool like it's totally different um graphics are really good gameplay is really good so um won an nes for a long time and then christmas came and um i was like man this is gonna be great i'm gonna get a nes and everything well um christmas eve i had like one big box under the um christmas tree and i was like this is gonna be really this is gonna be it you know but it was it was a TV. It was like a 13 inch uh, TV with like the, the wood grain on the sides yep. and um, the two dials. So it had like your, you know, two, three, four, whatever. And then it had like your 43, 20, whatever. I was like, man, I got a TV. This is great. And like there was that was it. And so I was expecting that there was like an NES hidden somewhere. And there wasn't. So I was like, well, that kind of sucks and whatever. But I got a TV for my bedroom. That was cool. So I remember hooking it up. And, you know, he had the rabbit ears going on. So you're going to get like four stations then. And channel uh, NBC, channel 25 came in the clearest. So what I remember watching on my new TV was LA Law, of all things. <laughs> so like Christmas Eve, like, was like, I was all excited because I was watching an episode of LA Law. I was like, this is great. It's my own TV, whatever. And then uh, fell asleep, went to bed, you know, next morning, woke up Christmas Day and um, had another present under my tree and it was a nes control deck hmm. like, oh my god this is amazing um so it was control deck and super mario brothers and then um i got some jeffrey bucks for from toys r us for uh for my grandparents and it was before you know before it was just a gift certificate they actually had you know currency it was jeffrey bucks so it was like i got i think it was like 75 dollars of jeffrey bucks or something like that man and, what's that so that's that's a hell of a lot of money, I know, right? I know. I saw. I mean, because I guess because I only got like you know two big things. I don't know, whatever. But uh, so we went to Toys R Us the day after Christmas, and I was all excited to pick out some games. And this is '87, so I remember the suggested retail price of most NES games at that point was like thirty-four ninety-nine, and maybe thirty thirty-nine, maybe at the most. But so the most part, thirty-five dollars. Like, okay, cool. I can get like two games. So, my first two games I picked out were favorites of mine that I played in the arcades back in the day and like pizza places and stuff like that. So, I got um, Elevator Action and Spy Hunter and uh, took them home and just played the hell out of them, loved them, and still do to this day, actually. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, so I was associate Christmas 87 with LA Law and an NES. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and it was just cool, you know, like. Coming through the, because um, my I think my control deck came with the um, the player's guide, the official Nintendo player's guide, mm-hmm. black uh, covered one. And I just remember like looking through all these different, looking at the box arts and stuff like that. And this is like the first year 
and like we talked in 86, I had some good stuff, but, um, you know, had so much varied box art and so much cool looking screenshots and stuff like that. And it's just like, wow, I can't, I can't wait to play these games, you know, rent them and, and whatnot. So, I don't know. Yeah, I did not have an NES in 87. I was still about two years after this. But um, this is about the time that I was starting to like learn about it and very, very small exposures. Uh, I remember my grandma worked at Sears. And one time we were there, probably around Christmas, I don't remember, but we were like visiting her when she was working one day. And um, they had one of the Play Choice systems set up. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what it was. I had never seen an NES before. I had been to arcades and that was the extent of it. And I was like, oh, this is weird. Like it's like a little arcade thing. And I turned it on and I didn't realize that you could like select games. There was just one that was already selected on there. And I started playing it. And it was like two years later, I realized that it was Metroid I was playing. Oh, nice. Um, but like I, I couldn't re- really figure out what I was doing. Like I was just young enough that like I couldn't really process the controls or the idea and you know since all i had had up to this point was an atari like my reasoning skills just weren't that great and like i couldn't figure out how to open the damn door like i tried rolling under it i tried bombing it for some reason i never tried to shoot it but um yeah i was just running around in that first room of metroid for quite a while but um so you you did figure out to uh like to roll the ball underneath like once you got it like the uh, did you ever see that um Meverse post from a couple of years ago where uh, uh like the kid was playing Metroid and he was standing in front of the part where he's supposed to roll under and he just said, Why can't Metroid crawl? <laughs> that was a, that was an actual post on Meverse back on the Wii U when uh Metroid first came out. Like somebody posted that like they couldn't figure out that you had to just like you know duck down and turn into the ball. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of funny, but yeah, so. It had some exposure to Metroid and, you know, the other games from this year that I remember were ones that like friends had years later after I did get a Nintendo, mm-hmm. because the, the other thing about the NES at this time was that they didn't print games, you know, that were going to last for years and years and years. And they didn't make, you know, tons of supply of them. So like I got my, I got my NES in for Christmas of 89. And by that time, pretty much every game on this list was gone yeah um well there's probably a few that were still around though like castlevania and no Metroid, i saw that most of these cartridges uh, with the exception of the legend of zelda i did not own until i was in college weird okay. because th- they were gone like by the oh. by, by christmas of 89 we had Castlevania 2, we had the re-release of Metroid came a couple of years later. Right, right. And we had Punch-Out, you know, versus Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, but, you know, the original Mega Man. Um, oh, that was, yeah, that was a short print run. All of this stuff was just, you you did not find it. So hmm. I kind of played a lot of this stuff, you know, after the fact, you know, years and years later. Um, Weird. So, yeah. I, with can, the, I can remember, like, some of these... Um, I got later on in like 88, 89 um, when they were cheap. Cause I can remember getting, uh, I bought 3d world runner for like 10 bucks. I think it was uh, load runner. Um, several of these, at least in, in around where I am at, I remember still finding later on. And there were some that you could get from, uh, you know, you could rent them from video stores and stuff and then buy them later on. But uh, yep. You, you, for me, I was able to rent some of these, Huh. Or um, 
like I said, if a friend had already gotten one by then, like I had one friend who had Jaws, um, I had a friend who had Top Gun, and I mm. had a friend who had 3D World Runner. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, most of these carts were you, oh. either, you either rented them or you played the sequel and never got to play the original. Yeah, um, that's weird because I can remember some of these I remember seeing later on. Um, I mean, obviously, certain ones like Slalom and uh, Splunker and stuff weren't around, but there were still some that I can remember seeing quite a bit afterwards. But some of them, like Super Pitfall, I remember like the first time I saw that box art later on, I was like, wow, I remember seeing this years ago. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, just maybe it just depends on the store. But then again, uh, the town that I grew up in, this is weird too, I remember it, but um, they never they never carried video games or anything except for in like sometime in 88, they had copies of Kid Icarus and Metroid. And I don't know why, it was a true value hardware store. But huh. uh, like, I remember he walked in and he went to the right and there was um, this section with glass cases and they had like, I think they had pocket knives or some other stuff in them. But I remember specifically seeing the silver boxes of Metroid and Kid Icarus in there. It was just weird. So I don't know unless how they got that shipment. But, uh, or maybe, you know, a lot of places were just starting to cash in on, on NES Mania at that point. I don't know. Maybe. But, you know. But yeah, Metro or Mega Man was super rare years after. Because um, yep. that did not get reprinted. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that Double Dribble and some of these were still being printed. And maybe it was some of the like, you know, higher end games that people were yeah. seeking out were wrestling, RC Prime, Rad Racer. I mean, a lot of these others were long gone, though. So, yeah, um, it just depends. I mean, you know, if you read into any of the history and you can see where, you know, Nintendo had purposely shorted a lot of uh, publishers, especially on like their their cartridge orders and stuff like that. So it's not surprising that some of the stuff would be really hard to come by later on, unless it was really, really popular. That could be the other thing, too, is maybe the publisher then paid for another print run of cartridges, which is why they popped up later on, too. Maybe, maybe. Just depends. So, anyway, there's there's a lot of really, really great stuff here. I mean, you could throw a dart at this list and find something that's great to play. But, um, you know, not everything was a huge winner, and not everything was very popular. And so I think we can spend the next 45 minutes or so. Let's talk about a couple of our favorites that, you know, weren't... Uh, or maybe highly regarded. Sure. So I think we got a good good pick here. I, I've got one that I've been actually dying to talk about since we first started the show. Well, I know you have. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was kind of surprised by your pick too. So um, good, good. I'm I'm always uh, trying to throw you off a little bit. So well, and uh, I think that's a good segue. So what, I'll let you go first, and yeah. I'm just gonna say before I, you know, before you spoil what the the title is. I just want to say that this is a game that I personally have never liked. And <laughs> I don't want to go so far as to say that I hate it, but it's just a, I've never enjoyed it. I don't think it's fun. It's clunky. It's confusing. Like I just, there's nothing about this game that I liked. Okay. And so when you said that you wanted to do it as your pick, I was excited because as I've said to you off mic before, like, I'm of the belief that there's no such thing as a bad game. Like there's something redeemable. There's, there's some there's something redeemable about everyone. And mm. all it takes is that one person who loves a game to sell me on it. And so if if you can come up to me and say, you know, oh, I love this game, here's why, I'm gonna listen to you. And so yeah, well, better. 
<laughs> so no, I'm very excited to hear, you know, not, not for you to sell me on it, but I mean, to, to hear somebody's uh, explanation as to why they love a game that I personally don't. So um, sure. yeah, sure. it'll be a good conversation. So okay. go for it. All right. Well, um, my, it, this was a tough pick because there were several that I kept coming up with and thinking about, but um, I kept coming back to this one and uh, I thought it would be perfect to discuss a little bit more and, and my reasons for uh, why I think it's an underappreciated game of 1987. And that would be Mighty Bomb Jack, um, a game that, you know, kind of like you, I never really paid much attention to this game for a long time. Uh, you know, I just kind of thought of it as sort of a crack game. And uh, like, cause it was just really hard and graphics weren't very good and music was kind of, kind of poor and whatever. So I just kind of, I never really played it that much. I mean, I just kind of gave it a pass, but it wasn't until I started watching Game Center CX and started watching a lot of episodes uh, on the DVD set that you can get uh, Mighty Bomb Jack is on there as an episode. So, um, so I watched that and I started to realize how, intricate and technical this game is and from a difficulty standpoint it's insanely difficult but that's kind of one of the reasons that i kept kind of coming back to it a little bit and and watching like watching arena struggle with it for one but then kind of just looking at how the game itself plays and what it expects of, of you as a player um i started to to dig into it a little bit more and the more that i found um as i was playing it then I started to discover like there's a ton of stuff that that brings me keeps me coming back to this game and even in in 2018 um there's so many different things going on now the, the basic um story of mighty bomb jack is it's a sequel to bomb jack which was an arcade game um a couple of years before but this one's a little bit more a little bit different because it's more of an adventure platformer um you got 16 stages to clear and there's um in between like the adventure zones as they call them like the action levels and then there's uh there's like a bomb level where you have to go through and collect all the bombs and get to the exit and then proceed on but there's so many things it's so hard to explain how technical this game is from the standpoint that uh, when you first start playing it you know you can jump you can't really attack so you've got enemies coming at you so you're trying to avoid the enemies you can jump on a treasure chest and something will pop out whether it be um bonus points or uh, a mighty drink or a sphinx or a coin or anything like that. But the trick is like, like the enemies all move in different patterns. So they never really play the same way twice. Um, the enemies spawn pretty much all over the place. So that's kind of a tricky part from there. Um, and the was I imagining this or don't they like change too? They do. Yeah. So they're constantly like changing and morphing and, and moving around in different spots. So, um, it's constantly keeping you on your toes. But uh, from there, then your movement, your your gameplay is actually really tight. It doesn't feel like it at first because like you press A and you jump and you just kind of float down really slow. All right. So you think, OK, there's not much there. But uh, if you press A to jump and then press A again, you'll stop immediately in whatever height that you're at, which means all of a sudden you can start controlling how high that you jump from there when you jump. And then if you tap A, as you're floating down, you'll float really slowly. So you can kind of like position yourself and move yourself around a little bit, um, especially if you want to get past lava traps or, or whatever. So that was kind of like, okay, that's kind of cool. Like it's starting to click with me now um, as far as the uh, playability. But then from there you have these, um, what they call these mighty coins. And 
this is a game that you really have to you have to read the manual to really understand what's going on in this game because if you don't read the manual you'll play it and you'll be like i don't know what's going on this is terrible right because the coins for instance they have a it's like a a little face on them a little black face with like uh bat ears or whatever kind of looks like a little mask that he's wearing if you pick up 10 of those without even thinking about it all of a sudden you're thrown into a, a torture room and it says you're greedy and to escape from the torture room you have to jump 50 times without getting hit by an enemy so you're thinking like okay this really sucks because i don't know what i did to get sent to the torture room and then you know you don't really it's not really apparent at first that you have to jump 50 times to get out of there so it's it's born of that sensibility of of a japanese video game that is incredibly tough and unforgiving and unfair right off the bat but that's one of the reasons i kept coming back to it so once i started to collect like eight or nine mighty coins and kind of keep it like that i discovered a strategy then to kind of keep my coins at that level without actually getting a tenth coin and going to the torture room now when you've got those coins if you press the b button you'll use up a coin and your character will turn a different color. So the first time you choose a coin, your character turns blue. And if you're blue, you can open the orange treasure boxes. You can get more treasures out of there. Now, if you press it a second time, you'll use up another coin, and you'll turn orange. And then you can simply open treasure chests by touching the sides of them, so you don't have to jump on them. Where it gets really interesting, then, from a gameplay perspective, is by pressing uh, the B button three times to use three coins, you'll turn green, and you'll clear every enemy off the screen. You'll turn them into um, like a, a little coin to collect. So that can actually get you out of a lot of tight spaces. And I don't think a lot of people really realize that uh, when they're playing this. You know, you have a kind of get swarmed by enemies and they're really chasing after you and you might get pinned in a corner. But if you've got three coins, press the B button three times and that'll, that'll give you a quick escape to get out and get onto the next level. So that's one of the reasons that I kept coming back to this because I started to discover more and more little tricks to it as far as, that weren't readily apparent at all when I first started playing it. The other trick to this that makes it really interesting is, um, so after you clear the adventure level, the first level, you're taken to a bomb room. And in the bomb room, there's usually, um, I don't know, uh, 20, 25 bombs in there. And so you have to kind of collect all of them with a, and avoid the enemies and get to the exit, right? But there's two different tricks in how you can get the bombs, and that affects um, sort of your progress in the game. Now, if you just go along and you collect all the bombs, because uh, as soon as you touch one, then there'll be a fuse that lights up in the next one, right? So if you go through and just collect all the bombs normally and then go to the exit, the next time that you uh, progress, the next time you die, you'll start from... Uh, like that area, that, like the furthest point that you got. So it's kind of like a save feature a little bit. The other trick to it is, though, if you collect a bomb and then you see one that's lit up, that's got the fuse light going, save that for last and just try to collect every other bomb and collect the lit bomb last, and that will actually warp you to the next bomb room. So you'll skip the adventure zone. The trick to that is, though, if you end up getting killed, you'll start back at the, um, the very first uh, point before you're warped. So if you went like 12 stages and did the trick and got through like 12 bomb rooms and died, you'll go back to like, you know, stage one or wherever you left off. Huh. So there's a whole risk reward aspect to this game that I never really discovered until then. And on top of that, I still haven't beat it yet, but I'm getting better and better as I'm playing it. And I keep coming back to it because I can just pick it up and play it. But there's actually four different endings to this game. 
depending on um, how many um, crystal balls that you find, which are hidden throughout the game. So like different different parts that you jump on, like different blocks, sometimes a secret chest might appear and there might be a, a crystal ball or a secret coin or something in there. So I don't know. Um, like I said, those are kind of my reasons for thinking this is underappreciated because I passed it up back in the day not even not even thinking about all the other stuff. I just kind of judged it on the gameplay and the graphics alone. But I think the more that I played games, the better I got at them. I came back to this one and I really appreciated the the amount of technical skill that's involved in uh, actually clearing this game. And that's why I keep coming back to it. It's almost, it's not quite roguelike, but it's got enough random elements that I don't think it ever plays the same way twice. So that is why I would recommend Mighty Bomb Jack. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting interesting one. one. Um, Um, So... I first bought this this on the virtual console on 3DS Mm. and I don't know. I played it a little bit and just, yeah, I was definitely guilty of the, I have never read the instruction book, you know, so I'm going through completely blind and um, yeah, obviously that's a huge, huge mistake. Mm -hmm. Um, And even, even reading through it, like the translation of it is not very good. And so like, the whole page that explains kind of the mighty powers and how you use the coins like that still doesn't make sense to me. And I played this game many times. Well, because um, they, they don't want to tell you that, that the three coins will actually clear the enemies off the screen. And no, the no. I mean, it, not even that there's on page seven, I'm looking at it. It's like, it explains how if you have three coins and you press the button five times, then it does this. And then if you press it 10 times, it does this, but it's like, that doesn't, that oh. float chart doesn't make any sense. It's so, proportion of the number of times A is pushed. Yeah. 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 Um, so, not really making a whole lot of sense to me there. But right. if it, it gives you enough of an idea that once you play it a couple of times, you kind of figure it out. But yeah, you're right. There's a lot more depth here in terms of the first several times I played it. I didn't realize that a lot of the stages have multiple exits. Right. Um, yeah. Some, and some sometimes of some of them are bad. Yeah, you might. There's one I found like I got a Sphinx statue and that opened a door. There's other doors I haven't figured out how to open yet. Well, um, that's the thing. Um, so you need to find every time that you pick up a Sphinx, that will open a hidden exit in that level. But the trick is the Sphinx are also hidden in different blocks as well. So, yeah. So yeah. Not, the first one I found was in a treasure chest, but then I was starting to realize like, oh, there's some that aren't in treasure chests either. Right. And yeah. There's one um, maybe in a block. It might be in part of a tree. It might be in, you know what I mean? Like, right. You just and if you keep, if you keep reading through the instruction manual, that's where you also see like, yeah, there's the, the multiple endings. Um, mm-hmm. It talks about the torture room, which I had played this game many, many times before I discovered that. Um, yeah. It also, there's a whole little thing about how to draw a map of the game. Which and it's such a weird description how to draw a map it's like, it is but it also helps illustrate the fact that there is some depth here yeah and it's not just a platformer go from stage one to two to three to four like there's more to it than that and yeah. there's ways that you can kind of like wrap back around and things but it's it's interesting and you know i should have known that this was tecmo so therefore it was probably a game you shouldn't dismiss because i'm a big fan of that fran or that uh developer yeah and i think that pretty much every tecmo game that i played for the nes was good um absolutely so it was wrong of me to just immediately dismiss this game 
Um, I still don't love it. And I think that it's, it's the kind of game where if you spend enough time with it, you will get much better and it will become more enjoyable, but there's a lot of hurdles to get past to get to that point. And yeah, it just, I think it takes it, it, it's not going to appeal to everybody, but um, if, if you're a person that enjoys a really brutal challenge to a game mm-hmm. or uh, like something with randomized elements to kind of test your hand-eye coordination and your, uh, your technical prowess, like that's why I like this game. I think because it's just, you know, I can sit down and just play it for a little bit and be like, okay, how far can I get, you know, how many lives can I get, you know, uh, and it, it plays differently every time. So, yeah. And, and I like the fact that there is some meat to this. It's not just a straightforward kind of game. I love those too, but I also like when there's, you know, some variety and, and, you know, here's another theme that we didn't bring up when we were talking about, you know, 1987 as a whole. I think that this was a year where we started to see a lot of nonlinear gameplay. Um, I was just thinking about, you know, Kid Icarus being another example of one where the stages are in a set order, but depending on how good you do during the game, like that really changes everything about it. Um, Metroid is obviously nonlinear. Mega Man, obviously nonlinear. Legend of Zelda, of course, you know, so, and, and this is another example of that. Like here's a game where it's not just a straight A to B to C to D and, I think that that's kind of a running theme of what this, you know, the, the companies that were making games in 87 were starting to discover. It's like, okay, we can do more than just stage by stage gameplay. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that you picked this and I like to hear, you know, your opinion on that. Um, I also, since you said, you know, yesterday that this was going to be your pick, I spent some time last night playing through it some more and definitely gave it more, screen time that I had probably mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. Um, and, and I do appreciate it more than I did uh, previous. Yeah. So. I, is, Mighty Bomb Jack is like the equivalent of an onion a little bit. Like it kind of stinks at first, but as you peel away the layers, you start to discover that there's a lot more in there and uh, you know, it brings tears to your eyes, but you know, what can you do? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I almost picked, it was either this or I almost picked Solomon's Key because I like that game a lot too. Solomon's Key is phenomenal. Yeah, that yeah. would have been. I don't know. I, I wouldn't say that that's really underappreciated. I think it's got its fans. but I think it does too. I think there's a lot of people who haven't played it. Yeah. But Mighty Bomb Jack was a good pick because this is definitely one that, you know, myself included, they just said, I do not like this game. <laughs> and like I said, if you're, if you're a fan of... Uh, like Game Center CX, or if you haven't watched them before, um, watch the uh, watch the episode that's on the DVD, the Mighty Bomb Jack one. And then uh, he did a few years after that. Then he did a live challenge um, where he tried to clear the game like in front of a huge audience, and it was a lot of fun. So uh, like mm-hmm. they the the assistant directors came in and like got him a bunch of lives first and started him on like a higher level and. Uh, you know, you try to clear it in front of all. It's just, it's a lot of fun because it's one of those games. This is a great game to watch, um, you know, people play because it's so tense at times. And depending on like how your skill level is, where if you're like, you know, ducking around enemies and trying to get to the exit, I mean, it's, it's tense, you know, yeah, sure. And that's what I like about it. So I like those kind of games. All right. So anything else you want to throw out there about mighty bomb Jack or should we move um, on? It's cheap. I mean, if you're, if you're, uh, tempted to jump in, I mean, um, you can get it on virtual console pretty much anywhere. Um, 
the NES version is probably pretty cheap. Um, the Famicom version I got for like three bucks on eBay, something like that. It's super cheap. So um, yeah, even like I said, even if you're you try it, you don't care for it, you're not out a whole lot of money. So yeah, that's very true. Look it up the value right now. Uh, yeah, Mighty Bomb Jack NES. What, like seven or eight bucks, something like that. Uh, nine dollars loose. Okay. So you could do worse. That's true. Yeah. All right. So now for my pick, which I feel like is a little bit more um, notorious. <laughs> um, so I picked a game that, like I said, I've been wanting to do since we first started doing this show. Uh, this is one, as I was talking earlier about my exposure to 1987 games, most of the games that I played, as I said, were ones that a friend had already gotten. And so once I kind of discovered the NES and was playing games at friend's house, there were these occasional random games that I'd be like, oh, I've never seen this on the shelf, but my friend has it. So I play it over there. Mm. And this is an example of that. Um, my pick was Deadly Towers, mm-hmm. which uh, I, I don't know how much people know about this game, but I'm guessing the repu- reputation has gotten out there a little bit because... I've seen this on many lists of worst games ever made. Um, and I've seen at least a couple lists where this was listed as the worst NES game ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is not a popular title. Yeah. Now I'm going to come to its defense. And my hope is that I can at least convince one person that it's a good game and they'll give it a shot. And if so, then I've succeeded. Yeah. Um, but I will fully admit that like a lot of my love for it comes from, well, no, actually, actually, let me rephrase that. This is a game that, as I said, I played when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I do have nostalgia for it, but this is not a case of rose-tinted glasses. Okay. This is a case of when I became you know, an adult and was you know, buying up used cartridges, I remember seeing this and thinking like, oh, I remember playing that as a kid, and I remember liking it. I also knew that it had the reputation that it did. And I'm like, I don't think it's that bad. And so because I had the memories of it, I was willing to give it a fair shot as an adult. Mm. And in doing so, I was able to get past, you know, again, those onion layers to realize that, yeah, my nostalgia wasn't clouding my judgment. This actually is a really good game. Um, So it's one that, you know, I do own the cartridge of it. I play through it. Meh, every few years um oh. but yeah i think it's it's just a great game and then like i said i'm gonna try to convince at least one person to give it a shot sure. um i want to stop you for just a second there and just kind of throw my two cents because i think um i don't i mean i remember seeing this game occasionally like at rental stores and stuff but looking at the the back of the box i was kind of dismissed it because of the graphics but yep i think um at least i sort of remember the early internet days the reason that this game sort of had the reputation that it did was from Sean baby. If you ever read um, Sean Baby's stuff back in like, you know, the early two thousands, as far as like even pre angry video game nerd, pre YouTube, uh, you know, I can remember reading like Sean Baby's stuff back then, like his NES stuff and deadly towers was, you know, his number one, the worst game of all time kind of thing. So I'm, I'm wondering if that's where the reputation started to come from. Maybe because, like I said, I didn't really, I didn't really give this much, you know, much thought. Then I don't think I ever really played it until just recently, actually. So, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I mean, I will fully admit that it's a tough one to get into because the graphics are not spectacular um, compared to other things of the era, even like the main character looks like this weird, like Charlie Brown character. Um, It's Charlie Brown in uh, Erdrich's armor. Exactly. Yes, it is. Um, The, when you first start playing it and you're going and it's like, Oh, there's all these enemies that are flying. It's, it's not things that look cool. It looks like random shapes from like Qbert. Right. Um, right. You're fighting spheres and puddles puddles and yeah it's like the marble madness enemies right um and they're all like thrown at you in the first screen yes so it's it's weird like the the aesthetic is not one that immediately grasps you or grabs you and goes like oh man this game is gorgeous or it's so cool like it's it's like what the hell like and then on top of that it is ridiculously difficult um now my goal here is to try to kind of demystify this a little bit because it's not that hard if you understand what's going on and Mm -hmm. i think that that's the other challenge that this game faces is that kind of like mighty bomb jack it's not intuitive at all right and so if you don't kind of have a good grasp as to what the game is you're going to get frustrated you're going to turn it off and you're never going to come back to it again Mm -hmm. um so to kind of help explain like how the game works it's easiest to start if i explain kind of how the map is laid out so, and this is in the instruction book, you can see kind of a, a rudimentary d- drawing of this, but the, the main story is that you're trying to defeat this evil demon. Well, the only way to get to the evil demon is by collecting these seven evil bells and burning them at a holy altar. Well, each of the seven bells is sitting at the top of seven different towers, guarded by seven different bosses. So your goal is to climb seven towers, kill seven bosses, get seven bells, burn them in an altar, and then you can go kill the final demon. Easy enough, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is that getting to those towers doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And most people kind of get stuck before you get to that point. So where you start the game, it's kind of this... um, area that looks like kind of like a dungeon or a castle or something like that and you can walk left and right and then there's you know a door that leads kind of deeper into the castle you kind of think of it like it's going into the tv um the best way you can imagine this map is to think of like that first room you start in is like layer number one mm-hmm. and then every time you go through a door that's deeper into the tv you're going up a layer to two three four etc And every time you come through a door that's like closer to the screen, you're going down a layer. If you think of it that way, there's a total of 10 layers to the castle. And the 10th layer is, it looks a little bit different. It's kind of like cliff-like. And on that 10th layer is where there are seven doors. Each door leads to one of the seven towers. Um, So it's kind of confusing to get there. But once you do, that's kind of your objective. Um, The other part about this that's really troublesome for people is that there are also dungeons there are a total of 10 invisible dungeons and invisible in the sense that you can't see them when you're walking through the castle you just all of a sudden step on a spot and you disappear and you reappear in this dungeon Hmm. um like i said there's a total of 10 of them there's one in each layer of the castle um including the cliffs now the reason that the dungeons suck is two reasons one they're enormous they're kind of, you know, box grid-like, and it's about 16 by 16 rooms. Oh, wow. So 
each one's an average of about 250 rooms. Mm. Um, the other part that makes them suck is that they don't start you in the same space that you exit. You have to find the exit. Oh, geez. So um, the first time you're just walking along, all of a sudden you're in a dungeon. Well, you might be there for a very long time and you're probably going to die there because you don't know how to get out. Mm. Um, which is why if you fall into one of the dungeons, get out some graph paper and map it. It's essential. Now, the dungeons are important because they're also one of the only places in the game that you can go to shops and actually buy better equipment. Um, I'll let you in on one of... There's two secrets I'm going to tell you that kind of will help you get through this game. The first one is that of all 10 dungeons, you can get by with only going into one of them. Um, really? Yes. The fifth one is the only one that matters. Huh. Um, there's shops in all of them. And kind of if you go to all 10 and map them all out, yeah, you'll find a ton of different shops. But they all kind of sell the same 10 different things. Um, there's only four items that you must buy before you try to go to the towers. And all four of those things can be bought in the fifth dungeon. So hmm. skip one through four, go straight to that fifth layer, try to find that dungeon, go in and map the hell out of it. And essentially what you're trying to do is buying all your starting gear. You start with a sword, you don't start with anything else. So um, as far as your armor goes, you can upgrade and get helmets, shields, gloves, armor, and better swords. Hmm. Um there's three degrees to each one. And in that fifth dungeon, you can buy the starting helmet, the starting armor, the starting gloves, and the starting shield. Um, keep walking around, keep earning money, keep refilling your health until you find all of those shops, buy all four of those things, find the exit, get out, never go into another dungeon again. Um, make your way up to the towers. And basically, at, at this point, this is the second secret to the game. The um, the contents of the shops change as you go through the game. Once you've collected three bells, all of the shops change their inventory, and the enemies in the game get harder. Same thing happens when you get to your fifth bell. All mm. the enemies change, and all the shops change. And that's the only way to buy that second degree of all the equipment, is kind of in one of those once the shops have changed over. Um, but the thing is, your third degree of all the equipment, mm -hmm. you can't buy any of that. You have to find it. Mm. But all of those best pieces of armor, the best sword, the best everything, is all hidden in the towers. Oh, okay. So if you've already gone to the towers enough that you've gotten three of the bells to make the shops change, well, mm. that means you can survive the towers. So just go find the gear that's you know, find the best gear and move on. Huh. Um, skip skip that second set altogether. I never have gotten it. Um, Interesting. So, you know, finding the the other, you know, the best equipment is is tricky. Like it's all invisible. You've got to find like secret entrances and secret rooms in the towers, but it's all there. And you can find the best sword, the best armor, a lot of other really great items as well. Um, once you just kind of get to the towers. Now, it's not easy, and you're going to die many, many, many times. But if you kind of follow that pattern, you at least have an objective, and you know it kind of help. It will hopefully help someone, you know, not to get discouraged and give up because there is a goal. <laughs> you know, there is, yeah, you know, the end line. Well, um, and am I, am I correct in thinking that like 
if you die and restart, you start with all your health and your items, right? Uh, somewhat. So it's very important when you find a new piece of equipment to equip it. Um, cause like if you pick up a helmet or you pick up a sword and don't go into the menu and actually click on it, mm-hmm. then it's just kind of sitting in that bottom bar and it's not equipped. It's not doing you any good. And okay. a- anything that's not equipped disappears when you die. Okay. So that's the issue I was running into then. On yeah. Some of I, I had that problem, you know, where I picked up a better piece of arm died before I could put it on. Well, it's gone. Um, but, but once you've put it on, then yes, every time you restart, no matter how many times you die, you've got it forever. Um, your potions, scrolls, pendants, that sort of stuff. Those Mm -hmm. will not stay. Those you either use them before you, before you die or they're gone. Um, as far as your health, uh, it's, your your health is measured by a little number at the top. You start out with a hundred is your you know total hit points, and every time you die, you'll reset to a hundred, even if your max goes up. Okay, and yeah, at, yeah, your your max will stay. Up. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you don't lose that. No, but it's kind of like when you die in Metroid, like you you don't start at full health when you die. I got you. Uh, you start with enough. a you start with a hundred, even if your max is higher. Sure. Um, and you can get the max up to 299 by the end of the game. Okay. So, um, yeah, and, and part of the challenge of this game is that your character is slow. You, you know, shoot your sword or throw your sword, and you can only have one sword on the screen at a time. It's really slow. It's really weak. But that's what all of these power-ups do. Like, mm. the gauntlets, each time you get a better glove, you throw your sword faster. Sure. Um, there's another item you get there. Well, you have to pick between two because you can only have one or the other. One's called the parallel shot where you actually throw two swords. They go mm-hmm. next to each other. And then there's another one called the uh, double shot where you can have two swords out on the screen at the same time. Okay. Uh, and those are huge game changers. You can find the hyper boots later, which lets you move faster. Um, it, it definitely has that kind of Metroidvania feel where like, you start out really weak and you suck. And by the end of the game, you feel like a total badass because you're just doing all these things. And it's, it's so rewarding because it's such a drastic difference. Yeah. Um, So I really enjoy this game. I think that there's again, like mighty bomb Jack, there's a ton of depth to it. Um, I didn't even get into all of the inventory that you can find, but if you look through the instruction manual, there's five pages worth of gear and equipment. And That's what I'm looking through here. There's a ton of stuff in this book. There is. Four different necklaces, four different drinks, four different crystals, four different scrolls, plus about a half a dozen other miscellaneous items. Uh, and these are all things that you can either buy in shops or you can find them in the towers. Some of these things are hidden. Um, there's one item called fire magic, which is very cheap. You can buy it right away. It will kind of, when you use it, it'll illuminate the door in the dungeon that like leads you to the exit. Okay. So that helps you get out. There's an item called the chalice, which will instantly fill your, uh, money up to 250, which is the maximum you can have. Um, there's things that make you temporarily invincible. There's, there's all sorts of stuff. And it's very similar to when we talked about Simon's quest way, way back in the day where like I kind of have my routine that I play every time I play the game mm-hmm. and, and it involves skipping, you know, 70% of the items. But this is also the kind of game that it's fun to go back and play it a different way. And 
maybe this time I will spend more time in the dungeons and map some of those out and look for, you know, more of the items or try using stuff that I've never really had before. Um, Mm -hmm. And it just, it just completely changes the dynamic. Um, There's definitely some strategy here. Like at the end of the game, when you start collecting the bells, um, you have to climb the tower, kill the boss, get the bell. And then when you leave the tower, the tower collapses. And so that, entrance is gone so if you didn't pick up you know the hidden items in there you're never getting them yeah um so there might be some strategy to not killing the boss like go get the items but don't kill the boss yet um Hmm. although the other side of that coin is that every time you take one of the bells and put it in the altar it fills up your health completely Hmm. so there are definitely times where it's like I i might save one bell that I don't burn just so that I know if I die, once I make it all the way through all 10 layers of the castle and get up there, it's like, okay, I've got something to basically give myself full health before I try the towers again. Hmm. Um, but there's, there's just different ways to play that. And, you know, th- I, I can never keep the towers straight. So every time I play, it's like, I don't remember what items in this one or what bosses at the top of this one. Sure. Um, so it's, it's different that way too. And also, like, no matter how good you get at this game, um, I've beaten it several times, but even with maxed out equipment, maxed out health, that uh, final boss is still a son of a bitch. Really? Oh, yeah. Huh. So yeah, I haven't just... made it that far yet, so I'm working on this game, though. But you've got a lot more experience with it than I do, so. But that's good, though, because, um, you know, again, I, after you mentioned this, I... I've been playing it a little bit off and on and I haven't had a whole lot of time to dig into it, but um, yeah, there, there's a lot more here than I expected. Um, As far as a game, I was just kind of thinking it was just sort of this crappy looking um, Zelda style adventure game, but there's so much more to it than that. And even kind of, I mean, I can see that, you know, it was, it sort of draws off, you know, obviously one of the big RPGs, at least in Japan was wizardry where a lot of stuff was based off of wizardry. And I can see that like deadly towers is kind of, kind of take some of that with, especially like the dungeons and stuff like that. But just looking at it and playing it, I can see a lot more of, you know, a a real emphasis on creating a a specific console RPG, almost in the vein of dungeons and dragons in a way, Um, because like, you know, the sheer amount of mapping that is required of this game that I was really enjoying as I was playing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the monsters, um, the the feeling of progression and, and discovering hidden items in the dungeons. I mean, it's it's all there. And looking at it for its time and place, you know, I can totally see if, if somebody was into D&D at the time, was into dungeon crawlers or RPGs, I can totally see why this game would have resonated. Well, and know. what's... What's great in that regard too is that it seems like the kind of game where you just you know pick it up, play it for a little bit, and be like, "Yeah, I'm done." Right. Um, Which is what I did at first. But because it's a password game, it's it's not like a Dragon Warrior where you're gonna you know continue to save it and chip away at it you know over time in that way. But through the password system, you are, mm-hmm. and it, that's not apparent at first because when you start playing it and then you die and when you restart, you're right back at the very beginning. And since you probably haven't gotten any of your health upgrades, you probably haven't found any equipment yet. It looks like you just reset back to zero and you made no progress. Um, 
it's not until you finally start, oh, I finally got, you know, the chain helmet. I got it equipped. Okay, great. Now, every time I put my password in, I'm just one step further. And from that perspective, you do slowly kind of chip away at it. And it's like, for me, even, you know, someone who who knows this game and has played it many, many times, this most recent playthrough of mine, it still took me a couple weeks. I mean, it's it's not a quick, you know, 20 minute, one sitting game like no i i wonder almost how many hours it would take to to clear this what do you think i mean obviously a lot of games weren't being tracked back then but what's a fair estimation like 30 hours maybe more i I mean if you were going to go like full full into it and map every dungeon absolutely i mean it's it's no joke you know 250 rooms a dungeon like that's and they're tough too like there's tons of rooms where you walk into and you just died and so you got to go back Mm -hmm. um for me i mean to know that okay dungeon five is the only one i have to go to and i've got my map that i've you know had forever that tells me where the shops are like i would say i could probably do it in maybe five or six hours um Mm -hmm. but it also depends on how lucky you get once you get to the towers do you did you pick the right tower right away or did you go to the wrong tower you know, and there are many rooms where you'll all of a sudden just get ambushed by six bats and you're dead. Um, mm-hmm. Something comes flying out, hits you, and you knock off a cliff, and yep, you're gone. Yeah. So it's that constant restarting that adds so much time. If you had like a game genie where you just were invincible, yeah, it's probably about a 20 minute game. Um, but it just it the difficulty doesn't lend for that. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, find a scan of the instruction book, too. I highly recommend that because all of the equipment is essential. Like, you have to have an understanding of that. Mm. Um, They do give you a little kind of picture on page eight of what the castle looks like, and that kind of puts it more into perspective. Um, But also, in the very end, on page 20, they actually have mapped out the first dungeon for you. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah. And it gives you a perspective of, like, how big these really are. Um, and it also just kind of helps you to say like, okay, this is how I should map some of the others, like those little circle markers on the floor. Well, if there's a shop in that room, that's how the shop is found as you walk on the circle. Same thing with the exit, but a lot of the others, it's nothing more than just a circle on the floor. So it's, but it's enough to kind of like get your bearings if you get lost. Um, so I was enjoying as I was mapping it a little bit, I was enjoying just kind of jotting down different things like that were in different rooms, like, you know, whether or not it had anything to do with anything, but it's like it adds to the mystery of it. Like, you know, oh, there's four statues in this room, you know, or there's a dragon in this room. So I would mm-hmm. mark that kind of thing. And just that was cool because yeah. it's like, you know, I, I've never really dug into this game. So uh, to kind of explore the the mystery of it all was kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great game. I think there's a lot of depth here. And you know, also, I don't know what you thought about the soundtrack, but I love the soundtrack to this game. It, it didn't really do a whole lot for me, but it might, might grow on me the more I play it. Yeah. It's yeah. repetitive, but um, I, I find it catchy and fun. So, sure. yeah. so yeah, I um, hopefully, you know, at least one listener has said like, oh, I'll give De- deadly towers a try and maybe now they love it. And if that's you write in and let us know. Yeah, or or if it's not and you unsubscribe, let us know, and it's all Scott's fault. <laughs> I didn't force anybody to play. Right. Although I did see a copy of this at uh, the store the other day for about three ninety nine, and I almost picked it up just so I could give it away to a listener. But uh, oh, that's just mean. 
not if they want it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not so bad. It could have been worse. You could have been uh, giving them a copy of the Karate Kid or something. They had Ghostbusters too. I didn't do that to them. Ghostbusters two? No, Ghostbusters also. Also, oh, okay. Or Ring King. You give them give them a copy of Ring King. Yeah. <laughs> Which we didn't even talk about Ring King. I mean, that's isn't that like the uh, uh, the first unofficial BJ in a NES game ever? <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? I wouldn't know. <laughs> you don't know what I'm talking about? Did oh. you play Ring King? No, I never have. Oh, okay. You need to play Ring King and then just watch the, um, the like, after the first round when the uh, um, the guy is, like, I don't know what he's doing, psyching you up or whatever he's doing, but, like, the position of where your, your little guy is sitting in the corner and the guy's working on you, um, it totally looks like he's working on you, if you know what I mean. So, <laughs> I can't believe you didn't play it. Man. Oh, you got to you got to do it now. <laughs> like you're gonna have to post a, a gif of it later. Yeah, but yeah. So yeah, so Ring King, yeah, first uh, first official BJ in a uh, NES game. So, so there's had, had had to happen sometime, I I suppose. Well, you know, I mean, actually, yeah, because I would say there's like there's the um, Custer's Revenge and Beat Me Eatem and stuff like that on Atari. So I guess you know that was nothing up to this point. So. <laughs> you have to look those up too if you've never seen them. No, so. I have. I'm yeah. not nobody's going to be uh, clamoring for a remake of Custer's Revenge. I can tell you that. Yeah, not good. Uh, but yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of good stuff in '87 though. Um, just overall, and I'm just I'm glad that uh, that you have this um, enthusiasm for Deadly Towers because you know looking at it now, it's and again I feel like this with with Mighty Bomb Jack too though. It's just after a certain amount of time of playing other games, you come back and you start to appreciate the other ones that, that don't immediately give you that sense of gratification. Right. Right. So, all right. Well, I think that's a good way for us to wrap up our discussion and say that we obviously have our little guilty pleasures or hidden gems or whatever you want to call it, but we know that you guys do too. So, um, yeah, if you guys have a ton of popular titles that we didn't cover, um, obviously, but, uh, you know, I, I think that I always like discussing sort of the obscure stuff and, and some, of, some of the underdogs. But, you know, if you've got fond memories of, you know, pro wrestling, punch out, RC4IM, any of that stuff, I mean, we're happy to talk about that, too. It's just, you know, we just didn't have enough time on the show to really cover a lot of the, the popular stuff. Right. But de- definitely still write in and let us know what you love. And, you know, maybe maybe we'll discover another hidden gem from what you recommend. But yeah, um, you never know. So, if somebody did want to write in and send us that information, Wes, how would they do it? So, you could uh, send us an email, graveyardduckpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we've got a Facebook group that's uh, a lot of fun, a lot of active stuff going on there. Uh, it's Graveyard Duck Podcast on Facebook. Uh, we're on Twitter at Duck Graveyard and Instagram, um, Graveyard Duck Podcast as well. So, you know, we're kind of out there in all the usual channels. But yeah, uh, a lot of good discussion going on in the Facebook group, especially. Um, so if you're if you're on there, if you haven't joined up yet, it's a lot of fun. So, and uh, that also ties into uh, what we're going to talk about next, which is um, our weekly challenge, uh, yep. which is our graveyard duck challenge, which we like to do in the off weeks between shows. So, uh, you know, we just like to kind of have a little competition and uh, just you know post a screenshot of a high score in a game, and you know it's a game. Most of the time, it's games that maybe we don't warrant a full episode for, but we still want to enjoy and talk about. So uh, we've, been, we've been trying to keep it somewhat thematic for uh, this this yeah. run of episodes, and 
Yeah, which is great. I mean, like I said, I, I like doing it by year because then we're we're focusing on, you know, a challenge game for the next year and then the, the show the next week and everything. So um, this one was kind of your pick, Scott. So why don't you uh, uh, clue us into the uh, Graveyard Duck Challenge game for 1988? Yeah, so since we're talking 88, I was trying to look through the list. And, you know, every, every year it's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger until we get there into the early 90s but um there were a lot of good ones to pick from in 88 but we've done a lot of the you know arcade style score attacks we've done a lot of the shoot 'em ups and i thought we should do something t- different but that's also a very very iconic game so i figured there's no way better than to do uh paperboy yeah awesome i love this game as a kid so simple uh one credit high score do the best that you can um mm-hmm post mm-hmm. pictures and include the hashtag graveyard duck challenge and your initials and get entered into uh into the running and you One know surprised that it is definitely not a copy of deadly towers <laughs> unless you really want a copy of deadly towers and i'll see if it's still there but um, it could be the uh like because we usually take the top five scores so maybe like the person in fifth place gets a copy of deadly towers <laughs> maybe or i'll that, keep it maybe it's better than the card card i have i don't know yeah i don't know so <laughs> So, yeah, post post your high score, you know, and I, I don't know, maybe I'll give a free runner-up prize to um, whoever hits the old lady with the rolling pin the most number of times or something. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe a prize for who can uh, un- unsubscribe the most people. I don't know. <laughs> you get fired the first day. <laughs> right, right. That was always a nice goal. So. Yeah. yeah so, I love it. I'm excited to play it again. It's been it's been years since I've played the, the NES one. It's like the, the NES version is not the greatest port by any means, but it still has its charm. It's still fun. So, uh, oh, and it was a huge deal when it came out. Like well, this game, this game was everywhere. I mean, yeah, and I remember, like as an arcade game, it was really hard to find an arcade that had it because uh, most of the time, the I, I think the the handlebar controls tended to break down a lot. But I remember, yeah. weirdly enough, I remember playing the Paperboy arcade game at Chi Chi's. If you remember Chi-Chi's restaurants yep. um, back in the day, um, the one here in Peoria had Paperboy for a while, which is so bizarre. I've back never, when just, I've never actually seen the Paperboy arcade. Really? Oh, there's one at Galloping Ghost as well. But mm. uh, uh, yeah, it was just it was that weird time in like the late '80s when like you know you would just go somewhere and there would usually be like one or two arcade games, you know, because arcades yep. were still like kind of a big deal then, you know. Sure. So, sure. Yeah. So. Alrighty. Well, post your scores for Paperboy. Hope you have fun with it and um, hope you enjoyed our discussion of 1987 and share your memories with us because uh, we'd love to hear them. But um, until we come back for 1988, I'm Scott. And I'm Wes. And don't forget, you start the game with the short sword. It is so weak, you feel lonely. You have no confidence in this sword. Game over. <laughs>